This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Hey, it's John Hall. I find myself happily back in the Hudson Valley of New York, where we've done multiple podcasts in the past. But right now, I'm at the namesake brewery for the region, the Hudson Valley Brewery. And I'll have Mike and Jason, who are the brewers and co-owners of the brewery, uh, coming up uh, in just a second. But first, I want to say that as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality service and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on custom, innovative solutions that match brewing customers' immediate and future needs. Thinking outside of the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or a ground-level design and engineering, GND is ready to meet the challenge. Contact GND Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. And this episode is also brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon, a three-day event celebrating the best hobby there is. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. Guys, thanks for sitting down and, and joining me. And just so that our listeners can differentiate uh, between the two of you because it's not video, um, introduce yourselves, please. Uh, I'm Michael from Hudson Valley Brewery. Hi, and I'm Jason, Mike's friend and <laughs> partner at Hudson Valley Brewery. I think we're friends. We, yeah. We're friends. Yeah, yeah, we're still friends. You guys are still friends. Yeah. It's, been a, it's been a long road for you guys. And I mean, it, it's starting in a... You guys started like a brewery in the back of a kitchen uh, years ago together as as home brewers and as friends, uh, and now you've built up a new brewery and a new business as well. Um, I mean, one sort of take me through that those early days of what it was like to to you know achieve the nano dream, as it were, uh, and then scaling up. But I, I also think that you know it, it's so interesting when you think about. Um, are you guys still friends or, you know, because when you start to mix business with, with, you know, with, with friendship and with, with family and things, you, you often read these stories of the strain and the stress. Um, I mean, once I leave, you guys might just go back to slap fighting each other. I don't, I don't know, but you know, it's for nice at least to have a break from the slap. <laughs> I'm glad I could be here to help. Um, but let's, let's talk about, let's talk about all of that and just sort sure, of, sure. you know, dive in. Yeah, well, we started even before uh, the restaurant at Bacchus. We started on my front porch in New Paltz when we were in college. Um, you guys were at the SUNY school? We were, yeah. Uh, or recently graduated, I guess. I was doing a master's there. Jay was bartending at our bar down the street at Bacchus. And I don't even remember why we really started making beer. I think we just were having so much fun drinking it. I had been doing it like on and off since I was a little younger and through college, but never... Never as seriously. I was never really pursuing it as a dream. Were you just screwing around on like a Mr. Beer yeah, kit or did you fun. have like I a... I had, you know, I'm kind of like a, a hobby whore, so I kind of like to build everything out and tech everything out. So yeah. I had the, the traditional like, uh, you know, five-gallon Gatorade cooler mash ton and like s- welded little things that my, helps, my friends helped make for kettles. But um, yeah, we started like just drinking good beer. This was probably like 2000 and... Nine or so, two thousand ten, 
Um, and there was this new like resurgence in sour beer, in IPA, and all sorts of like really creative and interesting things. Yeah. And uh, I think we both share an ambition where it's like we should do this. This is fun um, for not only for beer but for a lot of other things, which I think this company also reflects. But yeah, we started making beer there, and then um, Jason became the bar manager at Bacchus, and we were bringing in beers that we were making and just kind of drinking them at the bar. Um, and then one day the owners kind of approached us with an idea to make beer there and sell beer there. And that was the beginning of this whole thing. So I don't know. You did want to did you move your that? little rig down the street or like, uh, no, we, no, we, we did built, for a we while. Built a Remember, we, we had some uh, back, stuff yeah. in the back for a while, but then, yeah, then we bought like a proper three barrel, uh, electric fired, um, brewmation <laughs> brewery. So it was three vessels, very simple. Yeah. Uh, one hot water, one mash, one kettle. And we had a couple fermenters. And right from the beginning, we, we bought a couple of barrels, too. So a lot of our first projects were sour farmhouse and sour IPA, basically. Um, and that was, a, I mean, that's ahead of its time, though. At the time, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, um, I was going to say before, you said that it was in the back of the kitchen. I think that's a little too generous. Okay. It was actually in the, in the back of the back of the kitchen, sort of behind the dishwashing station, behind the uh, sort of spice racks uh, was where we had our sort of row of fermenters. I, I think we had, what was it, maybe five or six three-barrel fermenters. Five, and, yeah. and then sort of behind that, yeah. there was an um, long, um, unused um, sort of maintenance room that had been collecting dust and bags of rotting concrete and <laughs> all sorts of other uh, like knickknacks that the bar just didn't use anymore. Um, and I, I think that <laughs> Bacchus is like a, it's, it's awesome in that it's like a labyrinth of weird and somewhat unused rooms, yeah. or at least it was at the time. And so we, we found this room. Originally it was built, it was supposed to be a walk-in cooler for the kitchen, and then they, they never used it for that. And it ended up just becoming like this storage space. And we opened the, it, at the time it was a, it was a uh, walk-in cooler door, yeah, to just, yeah. to like a, just to a, like a storage space. We opened the door to the room, and we were like, this is perfect. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, fact, it, it's it, sort it, of like built for... Yeah, your I mean, needs. it was tiny. Yeah, of it was course. 200 yeah. square feet, but it had a floor drain already. And it yeah. was like... Oh, that's right. It did have a floor water. drain. Yeah. yeah. And it was sort of removed from the op like normal operations of the bar, so we could sort of hide back there, um, which was kind of cool because a lot of what we were doing um, was, I think, a bit unusual both for... Um, what was being served at the bar at the time, and then just generally what you can get. Yeah. You said before, uh, sort of sour IPA or dry hop sours was definitely a, a relatively new thing, but there were some people who were doing it, I think that we were directly inspired by. I remember having who? bottles of yeah. Anchorage, um, oh, yeah. Gabe Fletcher, sure. uh, like Bitter Monk and Titan Takers and stuff like that. And, they weren't branded as sour IPAs, but they were certainly like, you know, mixed hoppy, mixed culture beers. And Jolly I think Pumpkin. It, Jolly Pumpkin for mm -hmm. sure, Bam Beer and stuff, yeah. Wisen Bam and things like that um, were some of the early influences on us. Um, Could you have, so obviously, and then you did that successfully at Bacchus for, for a good couple of years and then struck out on your own you guys brought in a new business partner you guys uh, uh three-way team now as it were and um was it was that a necessary step 
because these days, you know, you talk to folks and it's either, you know, they're still starting off that way or they're going into a 10 barrel system or they're starting off with, you know, a 15 or even a 20 barrel system in, in, in some cases, depending on their level of funding. Um, would you have been able to do what you're doing here now without those first couple years on your three barrel system at Bacchus? I don't think so, and the reason, I'm not sure it's a matter of scale, I think it's a matter of technique and process. Like, we um, sort of learned how to brew professionally on that system under, I think, relatively limited means. We didn't have a lot of equipment or resources to bring to bear. Yeah. Um, and But we had an idea of what we wanted to make, and the sort of techniques that we developed at that time inform the way that we brew today, I think, directly. Um, it's only now that we've managed to scale up and and have, you know, bring in a new business partner, John Anthony, um, and his family, and um, sort of have more resources to bring to bear that I think that we've fully realized or come closer to realizing the original concept that we have, which is like sort of balancing the um, character of mixed culture fermentation with residual sugar from grain like raw wheat and oat and, and like things like milk sugar yeah um with like barrel aging and and hops and and uh the sort of hybrid style that we've come to be known for and and, and that strikes me as deliberate from the beginning and everything that i've read about you guys is because you walk into some breweries and i go into a lot and the styles are kind of all over the place or it's just one style um but it it's I, I remember, you know, talking to a brewer once and, and complimenting him on a beer, and he said, God, you know, it sells really well, but I hate making it. Uh, you know, I wish I could make stouts all day long. And it's like, well, what, why don't you just make stouts all day long? Said, oh, nobody will buy them. They, they won't sell. Um, and I should point out that we're sitting here in, in your office, uh, in, in, in your, your small little office. Sorry. Thanks for sharing a mic, guys. If you need to get oh, that, so that's good. fine. It's, uh, uh, the boiler is next door, and the, the, the brewery is uh, uh, in, in full production mode as we're recording. So this is, uh, this is how life, life happens. Um, but it seems like you guys were pretty deliberate from the beginning and saying this is what we want to make you know, and not necessarily bowing to industry norms or what you think people would want it's you know this is what you guys wanted to make and this is if people want to come by great and if not also great i, I what i mean yeah, i think we've always built our like profile of beer i think around acidity it was like our yeah. first thing we really fell in love with and that was in part, like we were saying before, inspired by a Jolly Pumpkin and those beers we were drinking because they were at that time so novel and so unique and so interesting that I think to start we pursued mixed culture beer. The thing we really wanted to do in the beginning was like barrel ferment beer, blend saisons and make like pretty slightly sour beers. But then we started to experiment with fruits and hops and things in those beers and started to realize that it was more than acidity. It was a balance of acid and sugar. It was a balance of acid and hops. It was a balance of pretty much acid and all the other things in beer. Yeah. And I think as a process and as a way that our process has informed this brewery, we started so small and we had such limited resources. And I think it's fair to say that we weren't technically very good brewers. You know, like our beers weren't coming out with the right gravity that we wanted. We didn't have any of those like specs locked down so we developed a process of blending because we needed to make the beer we wanted to make um 
without necessarily all the tools to make it. Yeah. So we're able to then like think of beers more as components to come together to f- make a final product. So we're making a, a beer that we have and still do call acid beer that's too acidic for anybody to drink. And then another beer that's maybe a higher finishing gravity with more sugar in it that we can put together to find the sweet spot, right? So what is the sweet spot? The sweet spot is like, uh, I don't know, we could talk like 3.5 or 6 pH with a, a high finishing gravity. Um, it's like a finishing gravity, I think, of a, of a milk stout, like 1040, 1035, but okay. acidity of a Berliner Weiss. But I also think that it's a, it's, it's a matter of um, context, right? Like the sweet spot is a moving target. Sure. Um, and I think that using what would normally be regarded as European sort of blending process, um, applying it to more contemporary, modern, like American manufacturing, where it's like fermentation and stainless and and a higher degree of control over Mm -hmm. the blending components um, is what I think makes our beer unique because the blending components themselves are pretty dialed in at this point with regard to like where we want residual sugar and acid and things like that to sit but then we also have a pretty good idea of what we want the final product to be and oftentimes like I said the sweet spot is going to be informed by what other ingredients are being used and so the base beer is sort of always starts off with balancing I would say like sort of three principal control points, uh, the first of which obviously is alcohol, um, providing the like bracing um, sort of supporting structure for the the beer that's built on top of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then always in our beers, or rather in most of them, we're sort of balancing the residual sugar, like I said, from from a variety of grains, and then also especially uh, more recently milk sugar. Uh, with like a profile of acid typically from lactobacillus fermentation or from mixed culture fermentation, but all in stainless. And then sort of built on top of that um, like trilogy, right, of control points is typically a type of fruit, a type of botanical, and a, and a type of hops, right? Yeah. Um, and so balance is a weird thing. It's like it's, it's not something that is... Um, I think pinpointable on paper it has a lot more to do with like having a discussion about the beer like as it's coming together like throughout the brewing and blending process and that's like just a discussion that we have and um, I think that our personalities like sort of temper each other I'm always Mike is typically I, I would say more not traditional but like seeks out like subtler kind of flavor arrangements like appreciates subtlety in a way that I um, not that I don't but that like it's just different whereas I'm like more interested in like outrageous flavor arrangements right Um, and I think that we meet in the middle yeah I think we've gotten way better at working with each other in that regard for sure um, all right, I want to talk about outrageous flavors, um, but first I just have to say, because this is what we do now on the show, because uh, people are listening, thanks so much. Uh, I have another sponsor read that 
Great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need in every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at one 800 374 2739. Thanks to them. Outrageous flavors, though. I mean, that that's sort of. I, so I'm going through through your list. This is my first time visiting your brewery. Uh, I started off with the Pilsner because that that's what I do. And thank you for having one. Um, but then looking down the list, I mean, it just immediately falls off a cliff. Um, uh, and 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 that's sort of like a good thing, you know, because you don't know necessarily what you're going to land in. Um, are we I guess if you guys are embracing outrageous flavors and flavor combinations and you know I really like that sort of that that three way between uh, fruit botanicals and hops as well because you know looking at all three uh, in a final product I think can bring some some really sort of fun results around um, you guys are still pushing the envelope of experimentation and I don't know if, if, if I'm just seeing maybe a little bit of a, a, a contraction in some ways uh, of folks who are um, you know, going back to the classics or rediscovering, you know, just what a straight up porter tastes like or what a straight up Hefeweizen tastes like or, you know, a Berliner that hasn't been, you know, treated nine ways until Sunday, but it's just, but, but it's just a Berliner. Um, it is kind of fun to come in and see your list where it is all over the place uh, with, with, the, with the various ingredients. You know, it's, it's, you rec I recognize a lot of the words, but I don't necessarily see them in the combination that you guys have put them in. Um, where, where does it stand for you guys with recipe development and where your beers are now uh, and where you might want to take them? Whew. Well, I think from That was the a very, lot, right? Yeah, yeah was, no, great question. Yes. From the beginning... I think I would I would say that our beers are mainly inspired by nostalgia and I think our tasting notes really reflect that like we're looking for flavors that are fun and like energetic and kind of bring you to a place that uh, maybe you're experiencing them in a new combination for the first time but they're kind of coming from a spot that we've all been to I think so, so this first one that I'm drinking is bloom bloom sure. okay so this is, I mean, it's it's guava pink. Uh, it's got some haze to it. Um, you know, it sort of reminds me of uh, not necessarily the color of Hawaiian punch, but almost uh, it's because it's a little bit lighter uh, than that, and it's a little bit thicker. Um, but your tasting notes on here, and I love that uh, on your menu, uh, you have these tastes like uh, for everything. And this one, uh, you're saying tastes like Friendly's Watermelon Roll. Uh, and for those, I guess, who don't live on the East Coast, that's sort of like a, a watermelon-flavored sherbet uh, mm -hmm. uh, that exists. Uh, fruity pebbles and the white mystery airhead uh, and a red icy as well. And and oh, all shit. of those are true. Um, <clears throat> and I, 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 I get that nostalgia part to it as well because, you know, somebody who deals with tasting notes all the time, I'm often thinking, like, how can I make this relatable? Mm -hmm. And for some of the other breweries that are in the area, you know, we've had Dan Suarez on the show and Hudson Valley, you know, he's, you know, doing Pilsners and Saisons and doing things that, you know, people can sort of identify with. Or if you go down to Chief's Place uh, at Industrial Arts, you know, it's sort of you kind of know what you're going to get into with some of the haze and, and, and some of the other things. I imagine that this has to be a tough sell for some folks, you know, maybe not like the uber beer nerds, but having these tasting notes that draw nostalgia, 
Yeah, well, must I think help. it's. It, I think it's the opposite of. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's there, or we try to make them, and I think they reflect like two levels of the way we think about beer, and one is a very, you know, inviting, approachable, fun product, right? So for the most part. I'm sure there are people who aren't going to be into beer. Maybe it's too sweet, maybe it's too sour, or whatever. Yeah. For the most part, that's so fun, I think, to take a sip of a beer and be like, well, this does taste like a white mystery airhead, right? And that's like this real nice surface level of engagement with a product that's almost like a pop culture reference. And then underneath that are these other layers of, of more subtlety and more developed complex flavors that we spend a lot of time on, you know, like fermentation character, grain, hop selection, botanical selection, that kind of reward uh, more insights and more a deeper evaluation of the beer. So what we've seen at the bar is this, like, you have the uber beer drinkers that come in and they're, like, they're really excited to pick apart some of the deeper layers of the flavors. And then you have people come in who are like, oh, I don't know if I want to even think about having a beer that tastes like a watermelon roll, but have one sip and they're like, whoa, these are really cool. And then have another one and just get excited about that, like, almost immature engagement with it too, a childlike kind of thing where you can just pick okay. out the fun of it, you know. So do you, do you, it, I'm sorry, sorry it's just, Jason, because yeah. I think that it exists, it, to reiterate what Mike is saying, it's like, I think it exists at both ends of the spectrum sort of simultaneously, right? And which is why we find it compelling and I think which is why we continue to brew this type of beer because it can be at once both sort of densely academic and complex in, in procedure and technique and ingredient selection and all that kind of stuff and also flavor arrangement but then also like sort of doesn't have to take itself that seriously right and, and can be fun and nostalgic and because of that you get people who are beer geeks who, who get into it but, but then you also get people who know nothing about beer who it, you don't need to know anything about the, the product to drink it and enjoy it and then we also get people who are like who straight up say that they hate sour beer and then have one of our beers and are like, wow, I've never had anything like this before. Um, well, I, all right, so really quick, what comes first? Do you guys want to make a beer that tastes like the Mystery Airhead uh, color or do you make nah, a beer and then nah, you just try to find... like after canning day, the whole staff gets together, we crack Tasty cans. Tuesdays. Tasty Tuesdays around here. And yeah, we just try to think as deeply as we can about the flavors in the context of like these nostalgic flavors. But some of them are very serious sure. notes too, you know, depending on the beer. And we, we kind of just get together and riff on them until we find ones we like. All right, so you're starting off with a with an acidic base, um, but I, I do think that sour is sort of a misnomer with the beers that I've had for you guys. Like it's it's an easy thing to say, and you know, beer geeks sort of flock towards sour, and and you know, people. Uh, it, it's something that can be easily identifiable, but I I don't even know if it's one of the first five words that I would use to describe the beers that go into the sour IPAs that you guys make. No doubt, I think that's because um, like we're using like acid is is one control point of many control points, and I think that while there's a lot going on, it I it's balanced. And, and, and that's why it doesn't seem as sour as maybe the pH would lead you to believe because yeah. there's other things happening in the glass. Um, the reason why we use the um, sort of descriptor sour IPA is just because we feel like it's probably the closest commercial description that you can get to having someone understand what they might be experiencing. Sure. But I... I don't know. When I even hear IPA, though, and I guess that, and again, going into some of these other um, other flavor descriptors, like the hops doesn't play 
don't, don't play a huge role in, in, in what I've tasted in the past. Like some of them, yes, but like, you know, even Bloom, as I'm tasting this right now, I'm not even remotely thinking about hops uh, in the way that, you know, if somebody says double IPA, that, that I would. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think that the way that people speak about double IPA today, particularly Northeast style IPA, um, the word juice is the like primary <laughs> descriptor, right? Um, so I think hop character is something that's pretty dynamic and changing and leaning more toward fruity descriptors these days. Yeah. Certainly there's as many hops in bloom as there would be in a regular Northeast style IPA. I would say whatever, between three and five pounds per barrel or wow. something. Like All right. But I think that it's a, it's a, the level of integration sort of masks its singular personality and makes it part of a whole rather than standing out in a way that it would if it were the primary flavor component. Because uh, I'll just mention right now, so 8% uh, bloom what we're drinking right now, uh, raw wheat, malted oat, milk sugar, cherries, chocolate, and chamomile, and hopped with citra and Simcoe, um, is, is the, at least the description that you guys are telling the public. Um, yeah, we've but even in beers, um, we have a beer called Incandenza, which is just our base sour IPA. It's just two-row and wheat and hops and fermentation, and people drink that beer and are pretty surprised there's not oranges in it or grapefruit and what we see and it's not nobody thinks of that as like a super hoppy beer in the traditional sense but we see a lot of transformation in hop character through our acidity so even our base beers have this like what what translates more as just a certain type of sourness is really a culmination of like the hop oils integrating with the fermentation and acidity. Yeah. So they're transformed into this really bright orange, grapefruit, lemon, citrus character that doesn't really betray hops necessarily because you're used to thinking of them in different aromatic ways. But once in that context, I think you start to get them. And then when you see them, that kind of flavor layered on top of fruit, layered on top of botanicals, like we were saying before, the more you let it warm up, the more you drink it, the more you experience it, the deeper you get, the more you can kind of break those apart, which I think adds a lot to like the, the deeper complex experiences that you can have with some of these beers. Did you want to add on that? No, I think, I think he's, he said everything. (laughs) How important is layering though? Because I, I, I think that there's a lot of folks who not a lot. I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But when people think of juice, when they think of New England style, when they think of the modern IPA, um, layering is important. But a lot of the time it comes off as, as, as almost a little blunt, uh, at least when you're first starting off. And so when you guys are thinking about you know a sour double IPA, um, layering must come into you know to play. Because you guys are doing a lot of blending. You're, you're, you're really thinking about... What's what, like? What's the ultimate goal, I guess, uh, when it comes to, to layering and getting these flavors to what's eventually showing up in our glass that tastes like whatever? Uh, like I was saying before, you know, we'll we'll start out with one of a handful of base beers, um, all sour IPAs uh, that balance residual sugar, acid, and alcohol. Yeah. Um, typically, the ult- I mean, the, the ultimate goal is to make something that is fun to drink, compelling, uh, thought-provoking, um, enjoyable and yeah, just enjoyable, you know, um, the flavor arrangements themselves, we just spend a lot of time 
thinking about and bouncing off of each other, you know, and for every beer that we make, there's probably 10 beers that we didn't make because one or the other one of us doesn't like the idea, you know, like we're constantly texting each other like, oh, how about this? How about this? And like, I think that we've gotten to the point in our relationship, both as friends and uh, co-workers now that like, I'm not offended when Mike says that is not a good idea, right. you know, um, because he says it to me so often <laughs> that like you get what? to the point where it's like it's just part of the process right? yeah like you have to be willing to have bad ideas if you want to get to the good ones sure. um and yeah so that, what, what's an cool. example of a bad idea uh we made this beer called plumage a while back that was probably <laughs> what was it called uh, that was a good idea no i thought it was uh, it was just i guess maybe it was a matter of execution just had to you in the can a little bit yeah. it was a sour ipa with grapefruit and mint um, okay. Which I still I stand behind 100. percent I think uh-huh. it's awesome. I like it too. It was a little <laughs> it was a little overpowering. The, the trouble with that beer, I think, is that there's a very harsh stigma for drinking orange juice after you brush your teeth. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of that's what, what you we were, were getting. For, it's, you know? nostal- it's nostalgic. <laughs> it's nostalgic. You know? Uh huh. Uh, some people still like that beer. A lot of people didn't like that yeah. beer. Um, it's polarizing. It's for polarizing. Sure. But in in some ways, we're gonna make it again. We make beers certain beers are polarizing because the flavors are kind of we try to make them challenging once in a while you know like we make a beer with rosemary because we like to think about how that botanical edge like that sort of herbal stuff can fit into the context of it so that's a hiding place it's a muscat grape orange peel and rosemary Jesus. okay which are you know like not necessarily all friends, but no. we see the wine grape and this uh, citrus acidity from orange peel kind of needed another layer, right? It was too it was too straightforward on all that level, and what rosemary contributed to that was like a, a richer herbal earthy flavor and aroma that kind of made a, a more compelling and more nuanced product at the end of the day. Bad ideas. I think we were talking about making one with parsley and with kale. Or you were talking about kale. Great. Because we were kind of riffing Great. on the Thanks, smoothie guys. idea. Uh-huh. Well, no. It's, was it? There was one where <laughs> we were going to do green yeah, green Good luck going puree, out of business. Green yeah. pea puree. Yeah. Maybe that's um, like 2020 Well, the stuff, thing. So, I, I don't We could know. use like pea flour, right? Isn't that? Uh, the blue stuff? Yeah. Yeah. The purple. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was like Nothing wrong with that. Was it great? Okay. Nothing like dirty dishwater looking beer. Yeah. Sort of part of what we're trying to do and what in 2019 we really want to focus on is grounding these beers in a, a, a deeper um, sort of more herbaceous um, base, right? So like so that it's not just fruit on fruit on fruit, right? Like having some type of depth of character to it, not necessarily vegetative, but like ha- incorporating more botanicals, right? Incorporating things like salt, um, in order to like further round out the balance of the beer without having it just be all fruity. And not just fruit in a goza, but in other recipes as well. Um, yeah, not, a, I don't think that we would call it a goza. Okay. Just like, again, using, using an ingredient like salt as an balancing component instead of uh, like as a major component in the beer. You yeah. Know? I, I, I'm curious about this whole notion of challenging uh, people when, when they're, when they're tasting beers as well, because there's some thought of 
you know, beer is one of those things where, you know, and I, I said this in my, in my recent book, uh, you know, beer is sort of an addendum to life. Uh, you know, we have a glass of beer on the bar, we're drinking it, we're with our friends, you know, it's, we might taste it at first and then, uh, uh, it just sort of melds into the background as it were. And, and some of the, I think the beers that have been successful in life, um, or in the beer industry have been sort of the ones that sort of stand in the background, the wallflowers that, uh, you know, we, we pay attention to when we want to. Have we lost our way a little bit? It's, it, 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 is, it, is it time to be challenging beer drinkers? If you're, you know, one of 7,100 breweries that are in the country right now is, is the way, is the path forward, not necessarily huge distribution, uh, but it's getting people to stop and pay attention to? Is it, is sure. it a I mean, I think smack in the face? The, the beauty of the beer industry now is that it could be everything, and it is everything. You know, there's there's enough breweries, there's enough beer drinkers, there's enough just like, you know, internet communication and trading about beer that you can be like us and find a niche that you're good at and people, enough people will want to drink it. So I think you can, and I love beer that stands in the background too, you know, and you can have both. You can have everything every way. You can have a beer like a Pilsner that we're drinking at home, have two of those and then have a sour IPA that's challenging, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it's just fun and fruity. It doesn't really matter that way. Um, but I think one of the dangerous sides of that is is trying to pigeonhole things and kind of like it's have have it seem like it should be something, you know. I think it's it's more exciting when stuff comes out that's just – on its face what it is and it's creative and it's fun and it's engaging for people maybe not for every person yeah. but for certain people and like I'm saying there's enough people out there generally if the product's good to help support it you know it's like music or like movies or like anything else it's just something that you know you find the right amount of people the right circle of people to enjoy it that's really all you need like you were saying earlier about uh, you know the general uh brew pub style or brewing where you try to make every style you know and, and you yeah. offer something for everybody that's still a good thing too you know i mean i, I don't even want to say that that's going away i hope it never does because i love to go to a brew pub and have a porter and then a pilsner and a pale ale it's yeah. a great experience but not every bar experience not every brewery experience has to be that right nor does it have to be just sour beer on the menu either you kind of find what you want to do well and you do it as best you can i think yeah, I mean, you know, we make just as much Pilsner and, and very traditional sour farmhouse ale um, as we do sour IPA. Um, and I think that necessarily we, like, we need to do that. I, I think that it offers balance to the other end of the program, which, it, which is kind of wacky, you know, and, and like novel and innovative and all of those things. Um, but it's a matter of a time and a place, you know, like I commute from Manhattan every day up here for work. I'm drinking cans of Feel No Way or Pilsner on the train ride home, you know, <laughs> yeah. while I'm, like, sending emails and sure. doing that kind of stuff. Um, we certainly make and drink plenty of Pilsner and, and, like, more traditional styles. But I don't know. I think that we've sort of found our lane with Sour IPA, and, and we enjoy making it. Um, and that's, that's why we continue to focus on it in that way. How much does... The, the raw ingredients of your grain bill. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of raw wheat and, and, and malted oats uh, in, in your sour IPA descriptions. How much does that play into that style? More and more. I mean, I, do you How want so? to talk about like the local farms and stuff like that? Sure, yeah. Uh, especially for our sour farmhouse program where you're, we're concentrating more on that. They, 
they're very related, these two sides of our brewery, but kind of distinct, where a lot of our sour farmhouse programs are based on a simpler amount of ingredients, I'd say. Like our Valley beer, which is just our blended, oak-aged, very fermentation-focused, um, like year in oak, four months in bottle, really pretty traditional kind of sour saison. Um, there's nothing in that except grain and yeast and water like no hopping in that um no botanicals no fruit so a lot more uh, i think of the the nuance and the character of that beer comes from grain so we're working a lot more with uh a local maltster in germantown maybe about 45 minutes north of here to malt what we want exactly and to the degree we want it but also to source like more buckwheat more raw red wheat more stuff that's like fresh and available and grown well, which yeah. we're seeing in the Hudson Valley a lot. And it's really exciting. But that same perspective translates to our sour IPA too, where we focus on, I think we were saying this before, sometimes we pay too much attention or we talk too much about the fruit and the botanicals in that. And that seems to like take over the curve. But just as I was saying about the way hops play their central role in this beer, it goes all the way back down to our water treatment to our grain selection the way that any other beer would so in order for this beer to come through with this like silky uh enjoyable mouthfeel that is a big part of why the fruit and chocolate experience is so pleasurable and not sharp and the acidity is not overpowering is because we have a considerable amount of malted oat raw wheat and flaked oat in this beer so like you're building that layer um before we're even thinking about what kind of fruits or what kind of botanicals are going to be in there so I think it's, I mean, it might not be as important as the fruit because the fruit's a little more ostentatious. Sure. The front but end, you but couldn't I think have, like, the, you, the, you couldn't have the fruit without everything else. Yeah, the fruit, right. the way that it presents itself yeah. would not be yeah, as. Yeah, the whole, the drinking experience would be different and it wouldn't be, I don't think it would be what it is at all, right? And people, I don't think, would be engaging with it in the same way because the balance we're talking about would be a little bit off and it wouldn't hit you the way that I think it does in the way we want it to. And then the the next part of that component is the lactose, is the is the milk sugar that you guys are putting exactly, in, in yeah. your beers as well. And and you guys seem to be unabashed big fans of Yeah, especially in these beers. I mean, I like we're saying sour beer for a long time when we were drinking it seemed like the objective was to make it sour. And yeah. was, like if it was sour it was a sour beer and was ready to go to market. For us, it was always an ingredient, more or less, like a way to balance the other stuff we wanted to, part of a bigger picture. So what we were finding is that the more residual sugar we can keep in the beer, the more pleasant the experience was, The more, especially the experience of the acidity. Right? Yeah. So milk sugar serves a great purpose for that because it's unfermentable, right? It can stay in that beer exactly where we want it. It provides this creamy, lush mouthfeel that is just like riding right underneath the kind of brighter acidity that you feel. Yeah. The same is true for cocktails, and I think that this is part of where that insight comes from. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, a Manhattan is as, like, revelatory as it is is because of the sweetness from the vermouth, you know? like Sure. If you ever have a daiquiri with a little, too little sugar in it, it tastes gross, right? (laughs) Sure. So, like... The presence of sugar 
while I think, uh, especially recently, is regarded as being some type of boogeyman in the industry, you know, like the uh, villainization of pastry stouts and stuff like that. Um, I think if if deployed, I've probably contributed like, to that at some yeah, point. Sure. Yeah, sure. It's fun to it's fun to do that kind of sure. Stuff, right? Yeah, but like if Pick I think that if guy. deployed um, with like uh, sort of thoughtful hands can be just as legitimate and ingredient as anything else we've been using milk sugar since we were at Bacchus and I understand that it's like become uh, like a hot button topic for a lot of brewers these days and and people in the industry but like again I think that if it's used responsibly uh, it can it can be a legitimate but that's the key word though is 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 responsibility and and I think that there are it, it goes to what I was saying earlier that there's just folks who are just kind of screwing around or that they're not putting the thought into or that they're just sort of you know using this as a blunt instrument in a lot of ways and they're not necessarily thinking about you know the long term and and, and again that's that's painting with a broad brush but yeah. I think you're sort of proving that in that there is if you do something responsible, if you do something where you've put in the thought, you've put in the science, you've put in you know the, the time and, t- and tested, you're going to get something that is completely different than what people are expecting. And you know, as I just fin- I, I we didn't even talk about the second beer that I was drinking. So yeah, you, this was you finished that one. I, I really <laughs> did. Uh, so is, which one was this? The that's a blackberry peach glycerin. So an eight percent double fruit sour double IPA with raw wheat, malted oat, milk sugar, blackberry, and peach puree hopped with mosaic. Uh, and you guys say it tastes like peach snapple, which it, it actually does. Uh, berry fruit roll ups, uh, Stewart's black raz milkshake, and grape big league chew. Uh, good on you guys for just bringing me back to, yeah. you know, striking out in little league uh, as at eight year old. Um, and and I really dug it. But what I was sort of left with as 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 with each sip is when you think of double I or when you think of double IPAs again and and hop forward, you're often left with some residual bitterness or the. Uh, the hop content really sticking on your tongue over and over and over and stunting it. And what I'm sort of left with is 20 minutes after finishing a lemon head as a kid and having that pleasant, sweet sourness, sure, yeah. you know, left behind. And that to me is where it starts to come on is in the after effects uh, of, of what we're sort of left with, not necessarily what we're starting off with in the way that, that, that some people might think. Yeah. I think there's a, particularly from the beginning, there's a lot of competing aromas in these beers, you know, like, that much fruit or when there's botanicals added to it too, like there's a lot going on in that whiff coming out of a glass. Yeah. Generally in an IPA, like your first experience from opening the can or from picking up the glass is hops, right? So from yeah. before you start drinking it, that's what you're thinking of. I think it takes a little while for hop character to come out of our beers yeah. or for people to find it in our beers. Um, because I think deliberately it's part of, like we are saying before, the overall picture of the thing. It's it's one part of it. It's not the part of it. I just want to jump back to botanicals as we as we start to end the, or get towards the end of this interview. Um, they can be so difficult to work with. Uh, you know, fresh botanicals, dry botanicals, you're going to get so much off of it. Uh, up here there's a limited grow season um, unless you guys are getting stuff shipped in. Um just talk about some of the challenges of finding one the right botanical and then the the timing for it as well because it seems like you might just be you know brewing from mid to late summer and then if 2019 is going to be your botanical focus um you guys could just take the winter off because there's it's not a lot growing. <laughs> that would be nice, that would be nice yeah. <laughs> no we source from wherever we can for that stuff yeah um 
and it really is just Providence a lot doesn't of, matter all that much of where it's coming from. For well, our sour farmhouse program, we try to stay local. So, but it's there are two different philosophies I think about the beer. Where some of our sour farmhouse beer is brewed with the intention of like finding whatever is seasonally available and using it that way. So we had we just put out last week a strawberry sour farmhouse with basil and lemon verbena. Okay. The strawberry side of that was done. The basil and lemon verbena were growing in the summer and provided a really beautiful contrast to it. We had tried lemon balm. It wasn't quite the same. But we were looking for that stuff, and it was grown then, right? Mike's being humble. He grew them on his own land yeah. and picked them with his own hands. Wow. So it's like, but you but know, I was I mean, also I, like, I grew that basil to make pesto, and then I had too, <laughs> had much. too much. So <laughs> it's like it's there, you know. Um, for other stuff, we're often taking in you know Egyptian chamomile or... Uh, yeah, you're not growing mangoes in your <laughs> yeah. backyard. Yeah. Our orange peel we use quite a bit. You know, it comes in from wherever we can get it. Yeah, it is challenging, and we do have a lot of misses that we that don't make it to a can. Uh, we just tried to make a fennel pollen one, and it, you know, we ordered a sample, we tried it, and it wasn't good. It we didn't, didn't like work. the way it worked in the beer, so we left it. But there's We're, enough out there that we can play around with. Uh, are most of the botanicals it. coming in on the cold side? Yeah, all of them. Oh, yeah. All of them. So um, we mess around in, in the glass a lot, like in, you know, just in very small quantities. So we'll pull samples of either uh, one of the blending components, which is going to sort of inform the, the, the bulk of the perception of the beer, and then steep botanicals in that, um, trying a bunch of different varieties. You know, sometimes the original idea that we have doesn't always work. And then you realize that once it's in the glass and, you know, we'll go through a number of different other varieties. Oftentimes we're surprised by um, the, you know, the effectiveness of, of a particular botanical in a beer that we didn't expect. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we would like to get botanicals from our own area as much as we can. Um, that's really determined by what farms are growing and stuff. And we're, we're starting to develop closer relationships with people who are growing botanicals in our own area but if, if we have an idea for something and we think it's really cool we'll order it on the internet i mean the internet like you can get anything on the internet <laughs> you right? can get so anything on the internet uh these days um guys in a minute i'm going to ask you uh what do you what do you uh what did you wish you know now uh, that you would have known uh, back when you started. Uh, but first, I will say thank you to our sponsors. G&D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. You can join the community of home brewers at the American Home Brewers Association and bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG. Thank you to our sponsors. Uh, what do you What do you wish you knew uh, back then that you know now? Hmm. Mike? That's a tough question. I say I wish I knew that you could hire brewers under you to clean stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say a very similar yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, you, the way stuff has way, gone. Way more blunt. Yeah. Uh, the way our company's grown, it's it, we've, we've each had our hand in every part of it for this whole time. And the only thing I've been reflecting on lately is, like, how that's grown and how... I don't know if I, if I wish I knew it. I think I, I like the course our careers have taken, that we've been able to see all that stuff. Um, but maybe to redirect it a little bit, the most, the funnest part, I think, of our job right now, other than making these beers, is to see other people working with us. Exactly. Doing things that maybe we thought of five years ago. And it's like, wow, these ideas worked. 
and now we're growing a company around it. Now we're employing people, and we have fans, and we have all this kind of stuff that came out of these weird ideas that we had on our front porch five, ten years ago. You know, um, so yeah, if I had known that was going to happen five years ago, I would have been a little more confident then. But I think I would have followed the same course. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same thing, really. Um, just like the sort of the value and power in, um, in, in having a, a team around you that uh, you trust and believe in, who are passionate. And we, we would definitely not be where we are now without our own partner, John Anthony, who's not in the room right now. Right. Um, but uh, and, and everyone around us. I mean, you know, while we're sitting here in this office talking about milk sugar, Connor is out there actually making <laughs> right. beer, you know. Um, That's one so, of the perks of the job. Yeah, I yeah. would say I, we should have, maybe not should have, but like hired hired more people earlier on, and and um, I think we would have like gotten to where we are maybe faster, um, and had to clean fewer fermenters. <laughs> but you guys made it out as friends, so uh, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. I think we did everything right yeah. so far. Yeah, Knock on wood. Good. Uh, Mike, Jason, brewers, co-owners of the Hudson Valley Brewery uh, up here in, we're in Beacon. Yeah, man. Beacon, New York. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, Thank you uh, uh, to all of our listeners, to our sponsors. If you have a question for me, guests you'd like to hear, topics you'd like addressed, you can reach out to me at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beerandbrewing.com. Or you can follow the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And you can go to beerandbrewing.com. And you should go to beerandbrewing.com where you can subscribe to the magazine. You can see homebrew recipes. You can find out what's happening in this craft beer scene. Uh, watch videos about homebrewing and professional brewing. Uh, and so, so much more. Um, and again, we'll be back next week with an all-new episode. But in the meantime, guys, thanks for the hospitality. Thanks for the beers. Thank you, Justin. For the, oh, uh, the fun walk down memory, uh, memory lane, as yeah. it were, as the beers start to kick in. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks again. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com. Find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.